about a year ago, I, I remember reading an article about interesting Puritan names. And for those who may not be as familiar, the Puritans, they were English Protestants in the 16th, 17th centuries, and they sought to rid the Church of England of unbiblical Roman Catholic practices. Some jokingly argue that their greatest gift to mankind was their taste in names. And I want to share a few. So the first is Praise God Bourbon, and he was an English leather seller and preacher in the 1500s. He had a son. The son's name was, If Christ had not died for thee, thou hast been damned, Bourbon. His son preferred to go by Nicholas, and I don't, I don't blame him. Right? And here's a few more. Farewell and his brother, Tywell. And there was also Kilson, and his last name was Pimple, so his full name was Kilson Pimple. This article goes on to mention how one of the Puritan names you no longer hear is obedience, which was a common name for daughters. Personally, I totally understand why it wouldn't be popular today, right? Obedience, why are you so disobedient? You know, I, I just... But the author points out how so many today are named grace or mercy, and nothing wrong with that. Where even in our church, we have several graces. But the author seeks to address this cultural shift, this general attitude towards obedience among Christians today, this potential lack of emphasis or even a de-emphasis on obedience. And she writes that it might be due to this desire to avoid legalism. It might be due to the idolatry of comfort. But whatever it may be, this should not be the case. Because our Lord commands obedience. Our Lord deserves our obedience. And what we will see today is our Lord Jesus exemplifies obedience. And what I hope this morning is that we will consider this unwavering obedience of the suffering servant and that it will compel us to God-honoring obedience. And we'll work through our passage with three questions. And I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to our passage, Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 9. And the three questions are the following. What is revealed about the servant's purpose? Verse 4. What is revealed about the servant's path? Verses 5 to 6. And finally, what is revealed about the servant's fate, verses 7 to 9. Now before we jump into these three questions, a little bit of context. This third servant song, it contrasted Israel's disobedience with the servant's obedience. The verses before this song, verses 1 to 3, likened Israel to an adulterous wife. And the Lord God knew that the upcoming Babylonian exile would tempt Israel to, be, to believe that he was divorcing them that he will be leaving them behind because of their spiritual adultery, that he was completely done with them. But through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord God reassured Israel that even though there will be consequences for her disobedience, he would never divorce her, that he would never give up on his people, and that he alone has the power to restore this broken relationship. And it would ultimately come through this servant. 
And this context sets up the stage for the third servant song. And what we see here is a stark contrast between the disobedience of the collective servant, Israel, the whole of God's people, and the perfect obedience of the singular servant, Jesus Christ. So with this in mind, we move into question number one. What is revealed about the servant's purpose? We see in this passage that the Lord God, this title, Adonai Yahweh in Hebrew, is repeated four times. And although this title appears throughout Isaiah, this is the only servant song out of the four that makes use of it. And it's a detail that cannot be overlooked. It was repeated to show that the God of the Bible was not just God of the Israelites. He's not to be limited to a specific group of people or specific area of land, but he was God and Lord over all. And there is no God, there is no idol that can compare. And this servant, he must be associated with this Lord God. Right? It's, like, it's like Mario and Luigi, Calvin and Hobbes, the servant and the Lord God. The servant's identity, his purpose, must be tied together with the Lord God. And what this means is that this servant, he can't be taken lightly. What this means is that what he will come to accomplish, he will come to accomplish without a doubt. And we read in verse 4 that this Lord God has given the servant the tongue of those who are taught. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Now this phrase, those who are taught, it was a way to describe a disciple. It was a way to describe a servant who followed and learned from their master through a relationship. And during biblical times, it was common for a disciple to live with the rabbi you wanted to learn from. It was more like a servant-master relationship. So the disciple-servant would serve, follow, learn from the rabbi master. And it wasn't just an hour of walking midday, several days a week. But disciple would go, the disciples would go and travel for weeks at a time with the rabbi to learn. So morning by morning, the disciple would wake up, continue this learning process, being formed, being guided by the rabbi's teachings. So it was a way of living, learning, and becoming more and more like the rabbi. And as we continue in this passage, what's interesting is that there is no word in Hebrew for obey. Instead, the Hebrews, the Israelites, they use the word hear. And the word is shema. And the most well-known use of the shema is found in Deuteronomy 5.1. When the Israelites, they received the law. And it says there, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel. The statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. As God's prophet and leader of his people, Moses spoke to the Israelites, reminding them of what the Lord had done for them and how they were to live in light of their deliverance, from Egyptian slavery. So to hear was to obey. But to disobey 
meant that one didn't truly hear. And this is what Israel was constantly guilty of. Psalm 81, 10 to 13. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not hear my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would hear me that Israel would walk in my ways. To hear was to obey. To disobey meant that one didn't truly hear. Now this speaks to them what true hearing is. It's not just sound waves entering our ears and our brains registering what words are being spoken. True hearing, according to the scriptures, in a biblical sense, it gets to one heart, it's one's heart, and it leads to obedience. And all of this sheds light on the servant's purpose. All that the servant would say, all that the servant would do, it would be done in obedience to the Lord God. It would be done in perfect obedience to the Lord God. And it's not driven by some crazy vision, but a constant morning-by-morning fellowship with the Lord God. And these descriptions of the servant we see being fulfilled all throughout the life of Jesus. Mark 1.35 tells us of Jesus' habit of waking up in the morning, going to a deserted place to pray. Morning by morning, it was through this ongoing dependence that Jesus would prepare. In John, 14, uh, John 12, 49, we read, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. One commentator writes, the tongue filled with the appropriate word for ministry is the product of the ear filled with the word of God. And this is perfectly exemplified in the servant, Jesus. But his purpose is further specified. The servant will sustain with the word those who are weary. He will sustain with the word those who are weary. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. All of us know that words are very powerful. It can build up someone, but it could also tear someone down. And what we see here is that the servant, he used his words to sustain those who are weary. Consider this. The word weary in Isaiah 54 shows up three other times in the Old Testament. One time in Judges 8, the other time in 2 Samuel 16, and both those references, they refer to physical exhaustion. The other time is in Isaiah 40, 28, 29. And the reference in Isaiah 40 and in the reference in Isaiah 50 point to an exhaustion that's much deeper than just physical. It's a spiritual exhaustion, an overwhelming exhaustion. It's an exhaustion when you start to believe there's nowhere else to go. It's an exhaustion where you start to believe there's no more hope. 
And it's these very people that the servants sought to lift up. And once again, we see throughout the New Testament how this was fulfilled in Jesus' life. There are countless examples throughout the Gospels of Jesus speaking words of healing, speaking words of forgiveness, speaking words of restoration to those who are ill, lame, rejected, and even dead. He even called all those who are suffering under the crushing yoke of sin to come to him and to find true rest in him. We see perfect obedience being exemplified through the servant. And the Lord God did not send his servant to judge and destroy, although there is a day when that will come. But what we see here is that the word from the servant was sustenance to those who are broken down in spirit, to those who are brought so low. And such words were spiritual nourishment that brought about strength and hope. This purpose, though, was not met with, uh, without opposition. There was much opposition, which leads to question number two. What is revealed about the servant's path? In other words, how will the servant accomplish his purpose? We see in verses 5 and 6 the path the servant will take in order to be a faithful and obedient servant. And I refer to Isaiah 40, 28 to 29 earlier, but it would be helpful for us to read it together. Isaiah 40, 28 to 29. Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. In comparing himself to those who are weary and those with no might, the Lord says of himself, that he is everlasting, that he does not grow faint or weary. Yet what we see in verses 5 and 6 in our passage today, what we see is a completely different picture. We see someone being worn down. We see someone being treated like the lowest of lows. So how does any of this make sense? How do we make sense of Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 50? The only explanation is this. This servant is beyond human understanding, is humble beyond human understanding. The only explanation is that this servant is humble beyond human understanding. In the four servant songs, what you notice is that the description of the suffering servant his suffering, it intensifies with each song, showing that his obedience would be displayed through the path of suffering. The servant Jesus, who never experienced being faint or weary, he humbled himself so low by taking on flesh in order to be made weary himself. And we see in verses 5 and 6, rather than turning his back in rebellion on the Lord God and keeping his eye on the world, 
he turned his back on the world and kept his eyes on the Lord God. To give one's back was one of the most vulnerable positions someone could be in. You don't know when an attack may come. You don't know when to defend. You're completely helpless. And it's not just that. The servant wasn't just struck on his back. He allowed his beard to be pulled out. His face to be spat on. And this abusive treatment didn't end here. We read in the final servant song that he was worn down to the point of death on the cross. It's not just physical weariness that he endured. He also endured spiritual weariness as he bore the weight of wrath that was owed for every sinner that would be saved. He bore the weight of wrath for sinners like you and me. Church, it would do our hearts good for us to reflect on this humility. Consider how low Jesus went on our behalf. So I ask you, where are your hearts this morning? Does the humble obedience of Jesus stir in you a sense of awe, a deep gratitude, a desire to respond in obedience? Or are your hearts just so hardened to Christ Jesus, so hardened to this humble, obedient suffering? Is it just in your head, but not in your heart? My plea is this, would you hear? Would you hear that the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, became a servant in order to be worn down on your behalf? Would you hear that great truth? This servant's obedience didn't lead to what we might think. It didn't lead to earthly blessing. It actually led to more suffering. And as I mentioned, it was to the point of death. And I ask, have you ever thought, God, I'm doing this and this and this for you, but how can you allow this to happen? I did this, but how can you allow this suffering, this trial to come in my life? If you're to dig deeper into such thoughts, what you'll start to realize is that you're actually not doing it for the Lord, but you're doing it for yourself. We are so prone to believe that if we obey and obey well, that the Lord will reward us, that there will actually be less suffering, that there will be less trials. And on the one hand, yes, God blesses obedience. He blesses those who hear and live out his word but we're not told how much of that blessing is material or spiritual or how much of that blessing is in this world or the next. But we do know that God blesses obedience. Yet we often fall into this trap thinking that blessing has to come according to earthly standards and our own timeline. The servant in our passage the many passages throughout God's word paint a very different picture when it comes to suffering as a believer. And it's important to know that there are different kinds of suffering. There's suffering that comes as a result of our own sin, active disobedience. There's suffering that comes from natural effects of sin, like disease and natural disasters. But there's also suffering that comes as a result of active obedience, of living out for righteousness' sake. 
But what's clear is this. It's through the path of suffering that the Lord grows us. It's through the path of suffering that we grow in Christ's likeness. It's through the path of suffering that we learn to cling more and more to our Lord Jesus, which ultimately brings him more glory. And some passages I want to leave with you to encourage you is this. Matthew 10, 24 to 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Maranatha, the Lord promises much to us. And one of those promises is that we will suffer as believers. Another passage, Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What would it look like to cling to that truth? We would see that we don't have to run away from suffering. What we see is that as we remain faithful in suffering, God promises to produce in us Christ-likeness. This servant is humble beyond human understanding. For our good and for his glory, he remained obedient on this pathway, never swaying left or right off the path. He stayed faithful to this mission in order to sustain those who are weary. But this is not how it all ends. And this leads us to the final question, question number three. What is revealed about the servant's fate? Verses 7 and 9 repeat that the Lord helped the servant. And we might think help for the servant would mean being removed from the path of suffering. But we see here a very important truth. Suffering doesn't mean God isn't with you. Suffering doesn't mean God isn't with you. It does not mean that God is not present with you. The Lord God was with his servant through his obedient suffering, helping him all throughout. And this is true for all of us who trust in Jesus. For all of us who trust in Jesus, the Lord is with us, helping us in the midst of suffering. And such help was a foundation for the servant's confidence that he would not be disgraced, that he would not be put to shame. And even though this is what his accusers sought to do, he knew that they didn't have the final say. And this is why he can set his face like a flint. A flint was a hard rock. And this meant that the servant had a rock-solid resolve to move forward in obedience regardless of what was to come. The servant knew the Lord God was with him. 
all the abuse, all these accusations were the result of obeying the Lord God's will. And we see how just, we see how absurd the situation is. We see how this points to Christ and when he is on trial, we see in Mark 14 how absurd the situation is. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And as Isaiah prophesied, Jesus faced these false charges without defending himself. And what ultimately condemned the servant Jesus to death was actually when he spoke truth about himself. If Jesus the servant was truly guilty, he would be deserving of all the unjust treatment and he would have remained in the grave. But in Isaiah 58, we read that the Lord God who vindicates is near. And what we see is the verdict would come three days later when the servant Jesus was raised from the dead. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Christ Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus' resurrection by the Spirit of God was his vindication. It was a declaration of his innocence. It was God showing the whole world that Jesus did not deserve an ounce of the unjust verdict from the religious leaders and the Roman government. Think about that. Not a single accusation against Jesus had any merit. Everything he said was true. Everything he did was perfect. He was truly the perfect servant. And it's here where we see one of the beautiful truths of this glorious gospel. For anyone and everyone who places their trust in this resurrected servant, you are vindicated. You are declared innocent and your honor is forever secured in Christ. This is why you can turn the other cheek when you're slandered for Christ's sake as we are commanded in the Sermon on the Mount. This is why you don't have to seek vengeance, but instead bless those who persecute you, as we see in Romans 12. This is what 1 Peter is all about. Peter is trying to motivate, put fuel into this empty tank of Christian followers, of Christ followers who are being reviled, who are enduring such difficult times. And he's trying to encourage them, saying, hey, I know you're being dishonored right now. I know you're losing relationships, you're losing status, you're losing everything that this world has to offer. But know that all of that is temporary. Know that the honor you receive from God is secure in Christ and it is for eternity. Just as it came for Jesus, vindication will surely come for you. 
Brothers and sisters, there is no charge that can be placed against us that can affect our standing before God. No charge. In Christ, we have our vindication. Therefore, we can focus on doing what is true. We can focus on doing what is right. We can focus on doing what is good, even when suffering comes. The end of this song presents two options. Will you stand with the risen servant and be declared innocent? Or will you oppose him and declare him guilty and remain in your guilt? It was a question given to those during Isaiah's time. And it's a question that still remains today. Where will you stand? With the risen servant or on your own? The first leads to life, whereas the second leads to death. Which side will you take? To close, I want to share this encouragement from Charles Spurgeon. How low was our dear Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. If you are not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. You are so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only begotten. Think of that. And as Jesus stooped for you, bow yourself in lowliness at his feet. Maranatha, God's grace and our obedience, it must not be pitted against each other. They're both essential for the Christian faith. This gift of grace, it was secured for us through Christ's perfect obedience. And brothers and sisters, this gift of grace is displayed through our imperfect yet genuine obedience. So I encourage us, church, would we consider this suffering servant? Would we consider his humble obedience? And would we hear him? And would we ourselves walk in obedience? Let's bow our heads in order of prayer.